This is Penumbra Cast, The Other Scene. I'm Fernanda Negrete, Director of the Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Culture, and my interview today is with uh, Dr. Derek Hook. Uh, he is here to join us for an Effects of the Artwork episode. Derek Hook is Professor of Psychology at Duquesne University. He studies and practices psychoanalysis with an expertise in Lacanian psychoanalysis, postcolonial theory, in particular the work of Franz Fanon, uh, the psychology of racism, and critical social psychology. He co-edits the Palgrave Lacan series with Callum Neal, which has published, I think, more than 16 titles by now. Yeah. And yeah, and he is one of the three editors, along with Stin Van Hule and Callum Neal, of the landmark three-volume series, Reading Lacan's Écrit, with Rutledge. His most recent book is Six Moments in Lacan, and he has many edited collections. He has Lie on Your Wounds, The Prison Correspondence of Robert Mangaliso Tsubkwe. <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. This was published in 2019 by Wits University with New York University Press. More recently, he co-edited Lacan and Race with Sheldon George in 2021 and with Leswin Lobscher and Mirage Desai Fanon, Phenomenology and Psychology 2022. I apologize for any mispronunciations of these folks' names. In uh, addition to his Duquesne appointment, Derek is an extraordinary professor of psychology at the University of Pretoria and South Africa. He teaches an annual summer class on Lacanian psychoanalysis in the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Burbrook College at the University of London. He has also a YouTube channel that you can find. Um, you'll, you can find it through by searching Derek Hook and Lacanian Psychoanalysis. So, Derek, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very excited because also you are, uh, in a certain sense, changing a little bit the way in which I had conceived of this series, Effects of the Artwork, since you have uh, proposed that we, dis or that you, you know, to discuss an image that is not exactly something you will find in a museum or something that is uh, relevant as an artwork per se. So you chose a news photograph by Chris Colin Gridge that appeared in the Sunday Times on March 13, 1994. And it is uh, a very violent image that you can find on the internet um, of two de dead South African neo-Nazis from the AWB, the Afrikaner Resistance Movement, and the driver crouching with hands up begging for his life during the Boputetswana crisis at the end of apartheid. So I've done a, a bit of an effort to describe what this image is all about, and I hope that listeners will uh, look it up if they're interested in seeing it. I warn you that it's a, a very violent image, but I would love for you to tell us uh, more about the context of the photograph so that the audience can understand what's going on, what the background is, and then we can talk about why this, you know, my prompt is could you could you think of an artwork that changed your life that made a difference after you saw, listened, or were exposed to it? 
Yeah, the, the, the prompt was a very interesting one because it took me in multiple directions. Uh, on the one hand, I'm always trying to get students interested in the visual arts, particularly, you know, the history of, of Western art history. And that's often a bit of a struggle. And I take students on a breakaway course. We go off to London. We go to the National Gallery. We go to numerous galleries. So I'm always encouraging them. And then when you gave me that question, I was like, it's very difficult to say which one artwork I would I would like to 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 supply. So a couple of things happened. One is I came up with a whole bunch of rather, you know, maybe more boring, obvious examples. And I shouldn't deride them because they were significant for me at one point. And, you know, even though I grew up in South Africa, the, the history of modernism and the advent of modernism and something as, you know, maybe overly exposed and we've all spoken about abstract expressionism was a big deal for 14-year-old Derek, you know, for whatever reason. And in fact, one of those reasons that that was so compelling may also tell us something about psychoanalysis. It's just that some of the Rothko and the Pollock images seem to me to suddenly advance the the, the dilemma of, of kind of pure abstraction. And um, I won't go into that too much, but that that was that was kind of a romantic moment of what would pure abstraction mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that has a kind of link back to to theory. Um, so maybe we'll touch on that. So that was the kind of formal art history answer that I wasn't very impressed with. Then I had another one, which I was quite impressed with, which was I started thinking about all the things that I shouldn't say about visual images or the most kind of embarrassing um, comic book images that had somehow imprinted upon imprinted themselves upon me. And um, yeah, I remember being in South Africa, miles and miles, of, you know, away from the Western metropolis of, you know, whatever, New York, London and all that stuff and feeling like I wanted to be in these places. But reading American comic books and and reading them in a way that I think that for most adults, you would have to take magic mushrooms or something to, to, to get that <laughs> same immersed uh, dimension of feeling the artwork, the style, the the dynamism of like Jack Kirby artwork really taking your imagination. So I had a whole series of examples of those as well. But then I thought, well, if I had to be honest, some of the work that most fundamentally changed me was in a way an artwork, and I'll explain why, but they were the arresting images that shattered something. I gave you one example, and um, you know I'm looking at it now on my screen, and it's um, it, it's it's an f- instance of photojournalism. And just to give you the story, this happens in 1994. This is when apartheid South Africa is is on its very last legs. It's it's falling apart. I'm trying to remember my history, but Mandela is is released by now. So it's kind of the writing is on the wall that apartheid's not gonna is not gonna survive. And um, without emphasizing the point too much, I mean, growing up as a white kid in in suburban uh, racist white South Africa, you had a certain perspective upon the world, which was one where an image like this was never supposed to be seen. Mm. And there's multiple versions of the image. But basically what happens is there's this um, uh, Africana resistance movement, the AWB, and and they're kind of like neo-fascists. They want to keep the white supremacist um, uh, state of the apartheid state of South Africa in place. They go to Baputaswana, which is our homeland, which means it's 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 for the rest of the world. South Africa pretends that it's an independent homeland, but of course, it's nothing really of that sort. And they try to stop some kind of coup. 
And what happens is there's um, a journalist there who who films this on video. They arrive there. They they're wearing these kind of khaki uniforms, short pants, quasi military thing, um, and and they get shot. And the arresting thing I don't think I'd ever seen, and maybe still today one doesn't see this in the kind of visual economy of images very often. I had never seen a black man killing a white man. And yeah, as as I you know, I, I think if I think about the contemporary context of the United States in in visual media, maybe you see this in fiction, but you know you don't often see, you, you often see the reverse. Yeah, uh, but you don't see that. And for me, the reason this image was so shattering was that it broke all the rules. I wasn't used to seeing white South African men, well, in one case, on his knees. The other one, he's got his arms up like this. He's kind of begging for his life. The one has been assassinated. Two of them have been assassinated. And interestingly, just in terms of Freud's idea of, of a trauma having more than one moment, I remember seeing it being shocked, outraged on, on news, like, how did this happen? I, I, and I remember even as a, you know, I'm thinking back, I was like 20 or something, I realized its impact on me was also because it broke the rules of what was supposed to be shown on, on, on you know, a kind of public media thing. But it came back several times because I remember seeing it in the UK some years later, but when there was a much less censored version where you saw a whole lot of the, the video and you saw the execution as opposed to just the snippet that I'd seen in South Africa. And then just to add one last part to it, I mean, you could say this is a kind of a primal scene of, of white racism, right? Like the thing that shouldn't be seen, the thing that shatters its 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 coordinates at some level. But the, one of the reasons why it somehow might still be an aesthetic work is I remember then going on to study art history uh, at university. And I went into the office of, of one of the professors there who was a kind of influential young young guy. And he had a little picture of it almost like a postcard image of it on his on his wall alongside, you know, I don't know what, like a Monet or something. Mm. And something sort of like it, it occurred to me that this sort of violent image, which was a non-fictional actual event, was also it's it also took its place in 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 a weird kind of way within the history of images of, of South Africa. Um, now, there's, there must be some sort of Lacanian point in here somewhere about an image which is kind of some kind of primal scene, which then functions in this kind of aesthetic work as well as a shattering image, and how it then becomes located within this, um, this office alongside multiple other images. It's somehow framed in a different way. But I think maybe for me, the reason that it was so, um, it had this kind of reverberation, almost like a deferred action effect was that I saw it in multiple locations and it got re-quoted, recited, resituated in an aesthetic domain without, oddly enough, diluting its violence and its shattering impact. Wow. Yeah, that that is very, that's very surprising in a certain sense. I love how you're bringing it across different moments and not just one. That does seem really relevant to how I have been exploring this question with a number of people and inspired to begin with by Freud's own repetitive uh, relationship to the Moses of Michelangelo that he just couldn't couldn't really figure out what it was that was that was moving him. And it is a sculpture where there is a question of something being installed or shattered as well, which is what you're highlighting in your own experience with an image. Yeah, I, I did wonder when you asked the question, you could say that maybe that image no longer exerts quite the same phantasmatic fascination and, and, and exertion on me that it that it had. 
because now that I can talk about it and I can identify it, you know, even though it's a brutal image and it, and it seems to shift things. So it kind of poses the question, what are the ones that I'm not able yet to, to, <laughs> um, the process to speak about, you know, there's presumably others as well, but that, that one was, that one was pretty important for that reason. Yeah. It sounds really interesting. So would you be able to say whether there was something in that image that was changing anything about how you were deciding to live your life? Like, I'm struck that you were an art history student, that you were already interested in in art even before you saw this image. You presented 14-year-old Derek interested in abstract expressionism. So what exactly... I, I get the thing about mm, this is an image that a suburban white kid in South Africa isn't supposed to see. Then what? <laughs> like, what happens when that's uh, transgressed? You know what? Um, what is a little surprising is talking about it now is looking at the date. So that was 1994. So I'm really 22. And for whatever reason, I had I had located it as earlier than that. It's funny. Um, and so maybe my response is to say, this is one in a sequence. There's others as well. But I think if I'm going to try and answer your question, the, you know, and, and this also relates to some of the to work that I'm trying to do at the moment. I think what it somehow signaled to me was this white existence and that I lived in what was was not going to to persist forever. Um, and in fact, it could be it could and was, in a sense, being very radically turned upside down. And so there's there's sequels to that. There's other images. I mean, the other image that I nearly did mention was um, something I've written about, but it was an image in a newspaper, also an image of photojournalism of a destroyed body of a black South African who'd set a bomb as part of the ANC's armed resistance to apartheid. The bomb had exploded. He was he was killed, but it was kind of gratuitously spread all over a newspaper. And that was when I was a lot younger. And the same kind of thing happened. I saw it. I was shocked. I kind of forgot about it. And then I saw it some years later, and it, it's something about the seeing it later. It sort of doubled its its impact, mm -hmm. like it, it was a, a sort of a latent um, quality that that had kind of been forgotten about. But the reason that image was important, and then you know there was like a threefold sequence. I'd seen it, and then again, funnily enough, in this art history department, where at the time they were very very you know progressive for South Africa of the uh, the 1990s, and and they wanted to explore, you could say, the visual economy of of that kind of journalism, how it altered how people saw themselves. And of course, in a way, that was certainly true of me, because I had always assumed growing up in South Africa, and actually also a little bit in, in Zimbabwe, in fact, I was born in what was then Rhodesia, was that I would always assume that it was going to be a white guy reading the news. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, that sounds like a sort of plural <laughs> way to, to put it, but that that's kind of how it was. You know, you, you thought... Um, and, you, you know, you still see these kinds of these arguments, but it, it really was a bit of a kind of shattering of whiteness, actually. But it's I think what it also sort of did for me. And it, it's funny because I know we were going to talk about Lacan on temporality and time, you know, so maybe this will come up. But maybe it also said to me, you better think about how to position yourself in a slightly different way. Yeah. I don't know if it did say that to me. But somewhere from being able to see these things at a university context where I that's the other thing, it wasn't just seeing it, 
because you can imagine seeing that and then saying, um, growing up in a very conservative household, oh, I've got to get a gun. I've got to defend myself. Or what? But something about it being debated and discussed, and maybe this also answers about why it's important that it was in an aesthetic space of an art history department as well, is it could get discussed. It could get thought about. And it's, you know, minimally traumatic or maximally traumatic element could be something which could be thought about. And, and allow for repositioning. And I think without sounding like an exaggeration, I think that was certainly in, in the, my political existence that did change my life because it became, and it, it's still a central thing to me to, to get the sense um, that, that how what you've grown up with, those symbolic ideals, whatever whiteness may be, that is not going to last actually. And yeah, you would need to be able to position yourself somewhat differently to that. Um, so I don't know, I don't know if that, if that answers the question properly, but it's, it's, I think it knocked me off a certain destiny. And I think maybe just growing up in South Africa would have done that anyways. Um, you know, you grow up with all, you know, segregation. When I was in high school, all of my schooling was segregated up all the way through the year after I left, then it was the, the process of desegregation began. Um, all the way through my high school, it was compulsory military service for white males. So I think I mean, I don't know. I, I'd like to think in the same way that I was destined, in a sense, always to leave South Africa and be interested in other things. I think I would have kind of shifted course from the ideologies of my parents and my upbringing. But something about the images I've discussed played a very important role in giving me a certain sense of agency and being able to do that, which is an odd way of, of describing them because they're very violent images and people died in the making of the images. Yeah. They, they certainly shifted a trajectory. Let's put it that way. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it does answer the question. I, and actually, it kind of, I can see how there's a clear connection to some of the work you do, which I mentioned in introducing you to postcolonial theory, to Franz Fanon. But uh, I'm also very interested in hearing about how you became interested in psychoanalysis in particular, because while your answer already kind of implies a certain way of thinking, it, it may not have something to do with these images in particular, or it may, but I just want to know why you got into psychoanalysis and Lacan in particular. I, I think, um, I mean, one of the answers is, is, is like of the three kind of, um, sorry for the dead white men thing, but, you know, of the three kind of crucial figures in 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 that. I mean, Freud, Michel Foucault was one. Well, the whole whatever people would refer to as post-structuralism was a big one. Post-structuralism, as it came into the university system in, in South Africa, at least in, in the early 1990s, you know, maybe we were a little bit late on the scene, um, that was huge because this was also the time precisely when I was looking at these things in the in the art history slide library. I just wanted to note that as well. Today, everything, you know, we would have it on. These were little tiny slides. So there's something mm, slightly yeah. about this. Um, but it was, sorry, just to get stuck on that for a moment. But there was such a nice, almost sort of postmodern uh, juxtaposition. You pull out these slides and you'd have, um, I don't know, 200 slides on a big sheet. And and sometimes it would all be the history of South African art, or sometimes it would be African art, and he has a little Mona Lisa. And, you know, it was kind of an interesting juxtaposition, mm -hmm. all that stuff. But Foucault was a huge, a huge, and the notion of discourse, which I which I fell in love with, because up until then, we'd been talking a little bit about ideas of ideology. I didn't do sociology, but I sort of found those ideas intriguing. But there was something about how Foucault theorized the notion of a discourse. And particularly the idea that the truth of the social era or social formation was itself discursive. 
And that started to make a lot of sense when there was the shift over from who had been the heroes, the ideals, the uh, you know, the all of the the kind of um, idealized subjectivities and pastimes and images, I suppose you could say signifiers of, of an apartheid era. And and then the shift that happened, particularly when someone like Nelson Mandela, who had been for apartheid, public enemy number one, suddenly emerges from, from you know, uh, 27 years of imprisonment and, and is now seen as a, a global hero. And, and it's, it was like there was a kind of uh, reversal of a whole series of ideological values. So suddenly Foucault's idea of discourse was important. But at the same time, I was grappling with that and falling in love with this and reading Discipline and Punish, you know, again and again and underlining things and, and having my, my, you know, 22-year-old mind blown by that. I had a very good teacher of, of Freud who had, I think, a, a, an excellent understanding. I mean, just in preparation for the interview, I pulled out some, I've still got this old book. This was what we had to read. And it, you know, it had this, uh, I was going to say history of sexuality, three essays on sexuality and the essay on vicissitudes of the drive. And that was, that was mind blowing. And something about that also, I don't know, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure whether the intellectual fascination of those things would itself have done the trick to get me on the road to Lacan and, and to take psychoanalysis seriously. And it may have, it may have, but it certainly helped. I think that, that there was this kind of seismic shift of ideological values happening in, in South Africa at the time. So yeah, there were a bunch of ideas in, in Freud, um, but then comes this thing. We were trying to uh, grapple with um, so-called post-structural theory. And then is this enigmatic figure of Lacan. And just as I've got my old penguin uh, library of Freud, I've got this book. Once my grandmother was still alive, she gave me like whatever it was, the equivalent of $8 or something to go and get a, a book. Or, or no, she just said, get yourself something for your birthday. So I got this 1986 Lacan book. It's an introductory book. I think it's still great by Ben Benuto and Kennedy. And I just read this thing and I was like, I don't get it. I don't understand this. Why does he have these I just don't, I am opposed to the notion that the unconscious is structured like a language, which is clearly not the case. <laughs> um, and then, and then of course, the, the, the diagrams. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they exerted a certain kind of fascination. So yeah, I, I, I could not understand it. And, um, but was in deep transference, which I was going to kind of try and pretend I've now uh, traversed, but I, I don't think that's... <laughs> And and so yeah, that then um, for me at the time I was I was so struck by all this that for me the best idea of a summer holiday was to take one of these books, to go wherever it's in the beach and, and just try and read this damn thing again and take notes. And oh, that was a big one. I've got an old copy of uh, Interpretation of Dreams. And one summer I went through that thing and I like with such ardor, if that's the right word, and um, and yeah, that that I think. I think that also had its defining influence. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thank you. Those are very generous answers. And yet I'm still curious about how you went so far as to practice psychoanalysis, which is like, you know, I know your story. I can think of, you know, similar things in my own trajectory with Foucault and 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 things like this that sparked an interest in theory. And I know many people who could talk about that, but you also, you're in a psychology department. You decided to practice psychoanalysis as well. So I assume that means you went and 
worked on your unconscious structured as like a language or not. Um, so that's something else as well. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that was, you know, if you, well, I don't know, it's not true of everyone, but a lot of my my colleagues and peers growing up in South Africa, you have this, I think some Australian and New Zealand colleagues that I've known, and also, you know, friends and, and people who've grown up in India, you, despite that, it, it's not sort of, you know, very, um, you're not supposed to admit it, you, you do have this kind of wish, well, not everywhere, I had it, um, to, to go to London and uh, and to go to New York. And, it, and it's like a burning desire because you want to be in these places. And just in terms of the, I was talking about art history, you know, it, it's funny, I haven't, you know, cataloged all the artworks I fell in love with, but not all of them. Some of the ones that I'm going to give you were South African artworks or African artworks. But, uh, you know, for years and years, I'd never seen the things other than in, in, in crappy reproduction. So to this day, it still amazes me. Uh, in, in so many American cities and so many European cities, you can walk into this art gallery and you can see Velasquez or, or whatever. I mean, for me, it's just, it's, it remains a, a little mini miracle. It's kind of miraculous. Um, but I, I wanted to go, I wanted to go and live uh, overseas and I wanted to go and see what it was like in London. And um, a whole series of reasons that I ended up being able to do that. And um, I got an okay job and I was lecturing and, and then there was a, a, a training there was a, a center. Mm-hmm. And so I started. And um, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I, some people have, well, I think I have a complicated trajectory to get towards clinical work. And, you know, there's lots of people I speak to who, like, I love the clinical work. And I think it took me a very long time to position myself in, in that way. I think for a long time, it was far more the intellectual curiosity than, than doing clinical work. Uh, that was my abiding focus, maybe still is. But I mean, I'm talking about a long time, you know, like 30 years of, of that. And I think it's kind of now it has shifted a little bit, but it it did it did take a long time. But I suppose the short answer to your question was being in London, I had access to the kind of training um, possibilities that I wouldn't have had in, in South Africa. And I also had access, funnily enough, pretty much very close to where I worked at the time um, at the London School of Economics, the, the, the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research would have their their weekly weekend seminars. So, you know, I, I could do that. And yeah, that, 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 was, that was also transformative in its own way. And what happened then was I, as part of that, I was excited by the idea of being a psychoanalyst. I don't think I was all that excited by the idea of working clinically nine to five every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that was then kind of important was my, uh, one of the places where I went to go and get some so-called counseling experience was Wandsworth Prison in Southwest London. Mm. And suddenly things became a lot more fascinating there because just because of the kinds of, of people I was able to, to speak to and listen to whose suffering was, I mean, it, it, that sounds bad, right? It's not like they were more interesting, but it, it, it was kind of challenging in a different way. Maybe that's one way of putting it. Um, anyway, let me not run on too much. I think I've answered yeah. a little bit of that question. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my next question is about how you brought together psychoanalysis and uh, Franz Fanon, which is fascinating work that you do and that I think more people do now. But I I just would be interested in hearing how you, yeah, how you made that connection, perhaps. Like, it's difficult to ask the question now because there is a lot like a, a context now for that in at least theoretically but 
if you read Fanon, he's not a Lacanian. He does cite Lacan, but the it's it's not an obvious connection to to start out with. And now we're doing stuff with it. But I would be interested in what you have to say about that. Well, fun, yeah, funny enough, you know, I, I gave these three dead white guys, but towards the end of um, my undergrad, uh, maybe no, this was like, let's say my first year of, of grad study, um, there was this big move called critical psychology. And that, that doesn't have much resonance in the United States, but you could say it was more theoretical, more politically engaged form of psychology, which was really open to, you know, thinking about what can Derrida tell us about psychology? What can Foucault tell us about psychology? And there's some moments of that in American psychology, but not very many. It's kind of more theoretical, um, philosophical and critical, politically formed versions of psychology. And so, you know, I was sort of in love with this stuff. And um, I remember a colleague at the time saying, um, you know, you 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 got to do something for not. And I was like, but I tried it. It's it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and and then and then I did start to engage with um, Fanon. And what was kind of nice is um, around that era, uh, let's say the late 1990s, the beginning of the 2000s, because things changed, there was a possibility to think about what you could teach in a psychology classroom. And the big you know, brainwave was like, hey, why don't we teach Fanon in a psychology course? And I just emphasize that because, you know, you, I think, did a nice job of reminding us that, like, today Fanon is, like, hugely cited and, you know, all over the academy, you know, decolonial impetus agenda is often associated with his name, almost as a matter of course. But that wasn't always the case. Although, interestingly enough, in South Africa, it was a little bit. Um, certainly in universities that were not historically white universities in South Africa. Um, my colleague uh, and friend, Lesman Loebscher, has said interesting things about that. Um, but what, what some colleagues and I then did was we tried to put together a, a textbook, and more than one, which would treat, would, which would use Fanon as one of the, the crucial theorists of psychology. So in around 2004, we had a big book called Critical Psychology, and it had like two chapters on, on Fanon, which I still like because I can't really imagine doing that in an American, you know, standard mainstream blockbuster textbook, although it would be great if it could happen. And maybe it will one day, but it's, it's that time has not arrived. So yeah. Fanon was, was important. I'll just add one other quick thing to that is, you know, talk about sort of white alienation in, in that time. It took me a while only to go through Fanon to get to Steve Biko and the history of black consciousness in South Africa, which you would have thought would have been a far more obvious and closer to home connection than Fanon. But I think that just goes to show a little bit of how, how um, well, for want of a better word, uh, Eurocentric things were still. So Fanon became important. And Fanon became important in a different way to Foucault and all the rest of it. On the one hand, you have the intellectual bafflement of, of Lacan, which implies a sort of transference relationship, an intellectual transference relationship to the subject supposed to know. There you go. Mm -hmm. uh, Foucault has this you know, grand eloquence, which does seem to start to make sense. And when I, I mentioned my, my friend and colleague, Leswin, who also was a bit older than me, but also grew up in South Africa, um, and, and he is, to use American terminology, the person of color. So he would often say, when I read Fanon, it hit like I immediately got it. Like it made sense of so much of my everyday experience. And I remember being asked about that with him. And I was like, when I first read Fanon, I immediately didn't get it. Mm -hmm. Like it was 
And it still remains like that. You know, these scenes of corporeal visceration, for example, and uh, the zone of non-being and uh, relative opacities, all these concepts that flow out of black skin, white mask, effective urethrism. Um, now, I'm not saying it's not difficult. It is difficult. Uh, and of course, it also had a kind of transference effect on me. But it had a certain different recalcitrance that I think, obviously, as a white male, and, and not just, but it fascinated me in a way that was very difficult to shake. And, and its imprint on me was of a different force, of a different type. And that that I still find. And I, I sometimes want to ask people, when you go back, and even if you've read Black Skin, White Mask, you know, four times or something, I find in a way that I don't find in quite the same way with something like Foucault. When I go back to the book, I find passages that I can't remember or, or, or that suddenly do a different piece of work. There's something about that book, which is, I mean, it, it's also interesting because it's written with so many different registers. There's yeah. a poetic voice. There's a kind of pseudo-psychiatric, psychoanalytic, phenomenological, Sartrean, existential, all of those registers, registers of fiction. You know, he's pulling on so many different voices and explanations. Its synthesizing powers of that book are, are incredible. But for me, when I go back there, I invariably, within three or four pages, will find something that, that strikes me yet again that I feel like I didn't get. Uh, and it's In a way, for me, it's an inexhaustible book. So, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to ask something. I didn't answer yet the, the question why that connects to Lacan. So, I mean, I can try and do that. But in, in, if something else has come up, I can... Yeah, a few things have come up for me. That's, but I'm I'm just uh, reflecting on the effects of uh, black skin white masks as well. One thing that I was interested in, and I'm glad you brought it up through this critical psychology uh, reference, is that in your Duquesne um, webpage, where I got your bio information from, you mentioned psychology as a human science or as as humanity so that's so that came back to my mind when you were explaining this volume that can't exist in in the US i i just wanted to to highlight that and to ask you because of the position that you are in like the at your job i thought that duquesne was this little space where of, of exception where that was possible or where there was lacanian psychoanalysis happening and you are there so there is something but it seems like i just wanted you to speak a little bit about perhaps why that doesn't work in the united states is it something about this culture that makes it impossible it does exist in other places you were explaining what it was like in South Africa. You were talking about London as well. And then we were in Brazil where it was a humanities um, college where psychology is housed. <laughs> and, and there was a huge crowd for it, which was very different from what you would find here if you do a Lacan conference where it can't really... I mean, you've done Lacan conferences as well, so... <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful, actually, that we both had that experience in Brazil together. So, you know, we have that in common. So I think we, we can refer back to it. But I mean, you know, for, for people who, who are listening to us, what was so remarkable about going to a big psychoanalysis and decolonization conference in Brazil is that psycho people were talking about Lacanian concepts at a sort of undergrad level and, and seeing them as, as imminently political 
as as is, could be used uh, analytically, politically, socially to think about the social domain, and we're doing it within the domain of what you could vaguely think of as psychology. Mm-hmm. So maybe just to go back to the human science thing, one of the reasons that I that I'm at Duquesne is that it's one of the places um, where they they psychology as a human science is viable. What does that mean? Psychology as a human science means that we want to ask questions within the discipline of psychology that are more theoretical, more conceptual, that have a, a philosophical background, which may take the root of phenomenology, which may take the root of kind of existential humanism. And for me, of course, that may take the root of, of psychoanalysis and uh, Freudian, Lacanian, whatever, Kleinian psychoanalysis, Jungian psychoanalysis. And, and I suppose in that respect, for me, it really is important that how we map subjectivity, how we think about subjectivity, how we think about engagement and clinical work with this thing called subjectivity needs to have the space, the theory, the philosophical backdrop of thinking subjectivity in a rather open-ended way with multiple theoretical dimensions rather than as a kind of construct that could be now uh, studied through you know the isolation of various variables. So what was different about being in South Africa and doing psychology, and from what our short experience in Brazil would suggest is also true in Brazil, is that psychology there isn't made into the same kind of, um, well, it probably is, but it's not only made into a kind of positivist science. Like, and, and you know, we can, I, I don't want to be too reductive in these kinds of discussions, because I'm sure there's lots of people who are very good and do great work in, in American psychology who would push back against the idea that that in America, in the United States, psychology tends to be gravitate more to kind of a STEM model. Although then again, maybe people would say that, right? That it gravitates more to a kind of uh, natural science model of measurement, of calibration, of isolation of variables, of laboratory experiments, of statisticalization, and all of those things. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe is actually a fairly defensible thing to say. But there's a couple of places, University of Dallas is one, um, University of Seattle is another, West Georgia, Point Park in in Pittsburgh. There's a few others where, like Duquesne, where the human science tradition of taking this philosophical backdrop to how we would think the parameters of human subjectivity are important. And so what that means is rather than students getting through a degree where they've got a kind of empirical research project, that's you know we don't necessarily have a, a hugely uh, big focus on 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 a quantifiable series of outcomes that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe that that helps. But it's it's also interesting to even take a sort of critical, slightly Foucauldian stance on the question and say, isn't it fascinating? In the same way, it's fascinating how psychoanalysis manifests in different global historical situations. Why object relations in the United Kingdom? Why ego psychology in the United States? Why in Latin America is there so much Lacanian theory? You could say it's also fascinating how psychology takes on the forms it does in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And certainly in my uh, upbringing, what was nice about the South African context was and maybe that's slightly shifted, but it felt like you could do more sociological stuff and you could do more social theory stuff within psychology than is often the case in those parts of the world where it, it is increasingly um, thought of as a more natural science. 
and I, and it's great to hear about these other places in the U.S. where that can happen to I, I'm not. I wasn't aware of all of them. But just quickly, you know, within the U.K., part of how that's critical psychology, more theoretical psychology, has, has kind of found a disciplinary home is in the notion of psychosocial studies. So, uh, you know, that's also home ground for me. So I just wanted to note that. Yeah. So let's see. I was also struck by how you were saying that for you as a white male, the effects or the repercussions of Fanon were different when you were remembering your friend's response to it. Yet there was some kind of impact. What is, could you say what that was <laughs> in some way? I tend to do the sort of intellectual thing first, right? So one of the, the thing about Fanon was his inventiveness, you know, just the way he comes up, you know, with uh, with concepts, epidermalization. That that to me was amazing that, you know, you, you go through three pages and he's kind of invented this, this new concept. Um, so that was crucial. But the thing maybe, you know, now it's, I'm starting to, see connection points in, in my my discourse. Okay, so we start with this violent image, and now I'm taking us back to another violent image. And maybe this starts to say something about me or... But okay, <laughs> and I mentioned one image that I didn't sh uh, show, but it was of a destroyed black body that yeah. was on a newspaper that I saw. So in, in Fanon, you have, of course, the striking example of um, his depiction in terms which are at the same time poetic, but not merely metaphoric, of um, corporeal evisceration. I'm being broken apart, my black body splattered with uh, blood, all of this. And I mean, for me, this was, this was very arresting, suffice to say. And the struggle was, how is this language that is very evocative and, and very graphic, not merely metaphorical? Um, now, I suppose the one answer to that is, well, depending on where one is, the context, the historical context, if that is apartheid South Africa, is if that is a history of slavery, if that is the history of Jim Crow racism and lynching, you can understand why those descriptions aren't merely metaphorical. Mm -hmm. But those accounts I struggled with. I struggled with the visceral quality of, of Anon's prose because I couldn't understand exactly what he was getting at. And, and I think... I think this is maybe what's part of the enduring quality of the force of that book, because, you know, you can do the intellectual thing. And of course, my first time around, it was like, OK, I can see a sort of Lacan's notion of the corp morcelet, the body in pieces being illustrated here. Yeah. But then, you know, you, you meet another scholar and they say, well, it's all sart. It's sart and the gaze that's going here. And I think one of the amazing things about Fanon is those may both be true, but they're still done reduce what the text is about. It's also about his experience. So, 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 I mean, I've just given you the sort of tip of the iceberg there, but those are those elements, both the inventiveness and this new vocabulary. And maybe, maybe I'm not being truthful or maybe I exaggerate. When Lesman said, this makes immediate sense to me, my sense was I had to, like, it, it haunted me and troubled me. And, and we could see why that may be the case, right? Because I, I did not share that experience of being gazed upon and broken apart in the same way. But on the other hand, the way that he would say things, and funnily enough, going back to black skin, white masks, there's quite a few Southern African apartheid references. But going back to it, it did there were parts that did make sense. And I'll 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 try and shorten my answer. But you know, we may also talk about Afro-pessimism, but to put it bluntly, some of how he was able to evoke some of the um, abjection that occurs within racism. 
that certainly did not come as a surprise. Um, and something about the corporeality and the physicality and the embodied quality of visceral dimensions of racism, that made a lot of sense. Not to say it wasn't still disconcerting, but that was a lot about my, my um, experience uh, growing up in, in South Africa. Wow, I'm so glad you you gave that answer. That's that's really helpful because one could kind of shut down when when it doesn't make sense and kind of reject what you're being exposed to. And you're giving us an account of how somehow it made its way into something that does touch some nerves for you and that like that this corporeality thing kept you reading and as opposed to just rejecting the text or something like that like this has this makes no sense or this is um this is wrong like if you adopt some hegelian framework like he's misreading this and that and you could be just like butchering the lived experience that is at the center of that book in particular it's one of the chapters is about the lived experience of the black man so it's it's difficult to put into words, and there's something I published before a, a paper which actually does try to track something of the history of this image of the of the destroyed body that I'd mentioned earlier. But um, it is difficult to put into words. But I think maybe now that I speak it out with you, there's a kind of odd asymmetry between the image that I started with and what what one reads in in, in Fanon. And I think one of the things that Fanon really helped me with is how in the, should we say imago, if I'm using the word right, or the, in the, phantas the phantasmatic engagement of white apartheid subjectivity, and not only white apartheid subjectivity, white phantasmatic subjectivity, I think what is a kind of crucial phantasmatic emblem there is, is the body of the other broken. Or the body of the other that is that is that is kind of still in pieces, yeah. and what I mean by that is is and and what what's surprising is you know sometimes I'm self conscious about talking all about the South African stuff because if you don't come from South Africa why would you be interested? But it's there's so many connections to to how this works I think within certain traditions of whiteness within the United States for example and not only, but um, this this circulating phantasmatic interest or concern and i know you're going to say well that's particular to you derek and i own it that's part of me mm -hmm. you know, whatever it circulates in my unconscious or did maybe less so now uh hopefully but i think that is part of white supremacy more generally and i think it's you know when so for example when you know george floyd when we see these kinds of images there's a sense in which they're traumatic and and awful but there's also a sense that somehow they are not as disruptive if it had been the reverse way around, right? If if we'd seen um, African-American police officer uh, doing that to a, a white man, I mean, can you imagine the outrage, right? I mean, it, anyway, sorry, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, um, sensationalistic about it. But there's something about that fantasy of the other's body. Uh, and Afro-pessimism is going to go and say a similar kind of thing. That Afro-pessimism, in as far as I read it, will say that it's almost an imperative, a, a constant injunction to have something about suffering of black bodies in place, uh, richly reproduced, uh, richly revisited, so as to somehow enshrine, you could say, the sanctity or the quasi-transcendence of whiteness. I mean, I've been reading, um, uh, as always, Sheldon George's 
um, account of some of these things. Um, and, and, you know, he, he, I know he's had a conversation with George Yancey about it, but both of those scholars say pretty much that. Um, and it is, so what I'm, I'm just trying to do a connecting point between something that was arresting in, in, in Fanon, something that I try to engage with in a kind of visual uh, analysis way of, of images that had, had had an impact, primal scenish impact on me. And and to underscore how they remain, I think, uh, emblems within within white white fantasy, and then also to pose the question: Why do I start with the image that I did? That image is a kind of reversal. It kind of does the opposite, um, and maybe that's why it stands out because it it does the opposite of what would have been the norm in in a, in a horrific and horrible sense, um, which is which is the reiteration of certain forms of suffering and, and brokenness. Um, for racialized others, which which may have a you know a, a bad reaction to in, in public engagements with it, but weirdly is still somehow um, maybe you could say could we unconsciously normative in some ways in conditions of, of racism. I want to come back to that with women's fragmented bodies in mind, in particular. Like that makes me think of I don't know serial killers. <laughs> uh, cutting women in pieces or a primal rape scene or things like it just takes me in that direction a lot more not that that this doesn't make sense to me it does but but then actually when i read black skin white masks often what he's describing to me is like yeah just any woman can understand this what you're saying about the black man's experience is there for women as well like that kind of zone of non-being i don't know but we'll we, we'll come back to this with a specific uh question that i have in relation to something you wrote yeah i, I do want to ask you about uh another topic that i find fascinating and that i heard you speak about at this conference in brazil that our friend andrea guerra organized you were talking about untimeliness and time signatures in and you were looking at post-apartheid uh, South Africa and at black skin, white masks, as well as uh, this is what I remember from listening listening to you. So the clinic with the obsessional neurotic analysand and his relationship to the future or the, or the wall that doesn't allow a kind of future to open up. So I just wanted to ask you about the relevance of time in psychoanalysis for you. Yeah, I mean, just to a, a brief sort of recapitulation, one of the things that I spoke about there in Brazil was um, what I call petrified life. And, you know, Fanon uses the notion of petrification, not an awful lot, but he does use it. And for me, I I think I was, without wanting to sort of overdo the psychoanalysis, was interested in texts about post-apartheid and apartheid experience and temporal experience um, and how this how they characterize this notion of or this this modality of experience, and there were a couple that that seemed to suggest that we would find something like a, a stoppage. Um, uh, uh, well, one was repetition mot motif. Ashil and Bembe talking about how um, deathliness inhabits time through repetition, and of course he's kind of doing a riff on um, repetition compulsion. I think without calling it that, but one of his ideas when thinking about temporality in the, in the post-apartheid context is part of what it means to be oppressed is to have one's agency within time restricted mm -hmm. and not just restricted, 
you know, one history is is kind of frozen, or one's ability to have some agency within history is is kind of constrained, but stuck in a in a kind of re- repetitive modality. So that was one, and then I, I mentioned a couple of others. And what I sort of liked about that little piece of work is, although I was trying to do different facets of frozenness or stuckness or of petrification, which of course nicely uh, the double meaning is both you know uh, petrification, frozenness, but also the affective dimension of it, is that I came at it three different ways, but they they were different modalities of time, which all seemed to fit together with this broader motif of of petrification. So that that was the one way, and you know, in that course, you know, uh, thinking about that, I think you and I have had had some interesting ideas about how we might then think about speaking about other modalities of of temporality, and and one of them, of course, interestingly enough, is is the idea of how one might even speak about something like um, so called feminine or, or non phallic jouissance as a temporal modality. Um, that might take us a little far afield, but that was an interesting discussion. I think both you and I have an interest in that. Yeah. But so I suppose what I wanted to say is that what's tricky about that work is, and it it fits in the psychosocial paradigm that I referred to earlier, because it both uses psychoanalytic ideas, but it's also trying to speak and think about social formations, is that you could say that there's a plurality. There's there's almost an infinite number of different modalities of uh, or, or temporalities that occupy a broader historical era. So how do we get around that problem? And I suppose you just got to collect a lot. But so that that that's interesting stuff. And I I would like to see different ways of of trying to think about subjective temporalities. But it does also take us to the the clinic and. Um, one of the things also that I've been working on a little bit is uh, there's this nice book that's come out. I'm sure you know it, but it's Betty Milan's book on uh, her what it was like to be. It's called Analyzed by Lacan. Yeah. Um, she she offers a few little notes there that I found really illustrative. So cut to the chase, Derek, what are we talking about? One of the real achievements of Lacanian psychoanalysis is to say, well, we've often thought about psychoanalysis in terms of Freud's ideas of temporality and nachtraklikate and all that, you know, deferred action. But what about the future? What about the time to come? And oh my gosh, if once you catch that theme and you go back into Lacan, whether it's early Lacan of um, the essay on logical time or his characterization of the mirror stage with anticipatory certitude, um, or later notions of, um, well, not just après coup, but of uh, the future interior, time is all over the place. Yeah. And um, I think what I've struggled with, and here's a question, as sort of Lacanians, we're always talking about, you know, future interior, we're always talking about like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, we got that future interior is that sort of odd mode of temporality where I will have been what I'm going to be, whatever. But what does it mean? What does it mean in clinical practice? <laughs> You know, we, we can bandy about these nice uh, these phrases, but what does it mean in clinical practice? One of the nice phrases that, that Betty Milan uses, she says something like, um, well, Lacan, there's two important concepts. She says, uh, she talks about the abruptness of the training, uh, of, of the, the experience of being in analysis with Lacan. And I'm just trying to see if I wrote it down. But she talks about word and time. And this is important for me because you could say that in early Lacan, what we do have is a lot of attention to signifiers and words and speech. And that's irreducible. That must be there for Lacan. But when I went back and looked closely at function and field, in many instances, when we're talking about languages as it unfolds, language as it is spoken, language as it is enacted, it's necessarily within a temporal dimension. Mm -hmm. And there's something very crucial about the Lacanian clinic, 
which is highly attuned to that unfolding. Now, whether we talk about the Zagernik effect of pushing pause at a pregnant moment, ending the session, someone, what was going to come next? This is, I think, what was going to come next. You know, all of these ideas, I suppose if I had to try and be as concise about it as possible, and this also relates to my experience of being an analyzant and, and what I would characterize as a very sort of Lacanian analysis, is a lot of the agency that starts to be formed, not a very psychoanalytic word, but here we go, is that the session is ending. When, what does it mean? What am I going to make of that? How do I? There's something about the use of time that almost pushes the obsessional, in my case, or the neurotic analyzant into the future of which that they're not quite yet ready for. Hmm. And maybe that's not the best characterization, but in Betty Milan, she talks about something about Lacan's abruptness. And it was so funny to hear that because I have all these memories of being kind of shoved out the door virtually when the session has come to an end. And something about how the clinical work tries to operationalize not just the temporality of what's gone before, but the fact that you might have one foot in another temporality of what is going to go to be, which is not necessarily the same of where you've been up until now. And for a good obsession like me, where I'm going to put my foot for me is no different necessary to where I have already been. In fact, I'd quite like it to be the same, but it's mine. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I'll just round up that by saying that, that that I think is a very important idea. You could do a little bit more complex theory, like towards function and field, there's, there's this idea of like the final judgment. And then right towards the end of function and field, there's a whole lot of stuff on, on death. And Lacan does this sort of amazing thing where he starts using Heideggerian articulations of uh, what is to come as a way of also thinking death drive, which gets very heady, very difficult. But for me, one way of trying to pass that would be to say, what does it mean if you can introduce the function of a limit into the clinic? A function of a limit, whether that's the suspension of the session, whether it's holding a certain word, um, which then does two things at once. It activates a kind of uh, retroactivizing function. Why did it end there? What's going on? What about my life do I need to think about? A retroactive position on one's own life, but the retroactive position of see you at 2 p.m. I didn't plan for 2 p.m. What do you mean? I can't be here at 2 p.m. Door closed. <laughs> so those two things together, and of course, maybe it doesn't work sometimes, but maybe it does. It's a great way of hystericizing and obsessional. And I keep on saying that because maybe this is more appropriate for some analyzands than others. The function of a limit, whether that is, you know, this old, uh, not so interesting sort of existential chestnut of, oh, if I take seriously my death, it's inevitability, I'll value more what's happened in my life and it'll give me a different perspective on my life. Something of that. But if you can bring those two things together, the retroactivizing function of like, what is in my life? What is there to be explored? What does it mean? As well as the fact that, oh my goodness, this one foot is being put on a slippery banana peel, which is I'm slipping into a future which is different from what I could have potentially imagined. If there's a way of activating that, that for me would be the future interior as it's operationalized, so to speak, within clinical practice. Um, and I think that's that's kind of what Lacan tried to do. And it's, yeah, I think it's it's a kind of really crucial way of thinking about what can be done. I know that's a lot of words and a lot of a lot of concepts. Just one last thing to add to that, 
Mm -hmm. One idea which seems to me important, particularly given the the resistance and and the frankly outright aggression sometimes directed at the idea of the variable session, mm -hmm. not all of which is misplaced. Sometimes you know it's possible that a variable session can be misused, you know, in very very short sessions or something. So you know I'll admit that. But one thing that I think is important is what Freud does with free association is to disrupt. It's a it's a disruptive and presumably slightly anxiety-provoking process of disrupting the process of empty speech or ego narrativization. Yeah. Because once Freud gets you to agree to that, like it's impossible to do, you try it, you fail, you try it, you fail again, but you try, that is a way of disrupting ego narratives and the security and, and the, the images one wants to portray of oneself. You could say that what Lacan does with the variable session, and not just the variable session, all the moments of scansion, the interruption, the funny response, the, the, the spluttering cough from behind you on the chair at a certain moment. What he's trying to do, you could say, is also operationalize something of the disruption we see in the fundamental rule, but doing it in temporality. And for me, that's always a kind of argument that I kind of try to convey when people find it mysterious or odd that there would be this, this suspension, this scansion, this um, variable session. Because you could say it's of akin to the fundamental rule as it is applied within the dimension of temporality as opposed to merely the te uh, dimension of narrative. Wow. Yeah, I love this. This is... Um... But it was a lot, actually, but it was beautiful. I'm going to have to listen to this again to, to think about many of the things that you brought up. And also, it like took me to think about things, about scansion in my own analysis. <laughs> so it was just took me very far in my mind. Let's just move on to, <laughs> to um, a question that I have on Afro-pessimism, which you already said that we were going to talk about. So this is coming from my reading uh, a great essay that you wrote and that will appear at the in the center's journal Penumbra. So in your reading of Wilderson's work on Afro-pessimism and its way of expanding Lacanian ideas, in particular the concept of jouissance, you point to Afro-pessimism's distinction between anti-blackness and racism in general. And you cite Wilderson's proposition that anti-blackness and social death are different from the violence of misogyny and the oppression of the working class on the ground. This is a citation uh, that these two are byproducts of the symbolic patriarchal and economic order, whereas the jouissance that gives rise to the violence of anti-blackness is a perverse and affirmative one that secures non-black as human life and ontological order. So uh, I've already uh, kind of pointed to something I'm interested in uh, hearing you speak about. So here, I wonder if you agree that misogyny presents this causal relation between violence, social organization, and jouissance, since un unlike colonialism, sexual violence against women was more consistently interrogated in the development of psychoanalytic theory and practice, unlike race. This is like something that we are thinking about now, but it was minimal. And you start your essay by pointing to how little Lacan was concerned with certain things about uh, Algeria, for example, or other more racial and colonial questions. So that's the first question. And then after you answer it, I'll move to the second one. 
Sure. So um, it's a little difficult for me to, I mean, I, I can't really be a sort of spokesperson for Afro-pessimism for, for obvious reasons, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a student of it. I'm trying to understand it. And maybe actually the same reaction I was talking about in terms of trying to to find my way in Fanon might also be pertinent here. So I, I'm just trying to 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 relay and, and think about those ideas. I, I, I'm not, you know, it's not, anyways, you get the point. Um, but so the claim that is made, as far as I understand it, in Afro pessimism, and I think it's I think it's a very much a, a crucial point and rather a defensible claim, is is that anti blackness is not the same as 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 what is often referred to as racism. Uh, even if we're talking about white racism towards um, whatever African Americans, anti blackness has a very distinct status for Afro pessimists. And they want to link that as far as, again, as far as I understand, to a history of slavery. And, and it is God. Here's also the crucial thing that for Afro-pessimism, we're talking about a project of political ontology. So this is not merely a social construction. It's not merely, you know, race as a racism as a, as a, as a kind of construction or a, a unfortunate dynamics of identity that has a kind of psychological basis. They want to, un, Afro-pessimists want to underline the ontological dimension of this, by which, and there's amazing connections here, where Fanon says interesting things, as in, for example, the zone of non-being. Um, where Fanon seems to also have a similar kind of intuition. Now, of course, there's a whole lot of Fanon scholars who are going to say, hold on, Fanon's not an Afro-pessimist. And some Afro-pessimists will also agree with that, despite that there's these moments where that that kind of, that idea seems to be conveyed. But the crucial thing, I think, for, well, a bunch of crucial things, for Afro-pessimism, anti-Blackness is not the same and should not be equated with multiple other struggles, um, of oppression. It's distinct. And one of the things which defines it is the history of slavery. Um, and that brings with it a couple of different dimensions. Um, so if we have time, we could maybe talk about that. But one of the other crucial things is that for Afro-pessimism, Blackness is ejected from the category of the human. So I was reading a nice uh, interview between um, George Yancey and Frank Wilderson on this topic. And um, if I'm remembering it correctly, Yancey says, well, you know, I'd always seen this thing as, as kind of like, well, you know, um, blackness is ejected and relationally defined by whiteness. And Wilden, Wilderson will say, well, not quite. Actually, the breaking down of blackness, the ejection, the exclusion of blackness from an ontological status of relation, uh, uh, relationality of being is part of what sustains whiteness. And so in order for there to exist whiteness in the way it does, and humanness, that's the crucial point. So I kind of made a, a conflation there. Humanness and whiteness as such, for that to exist, and, and humanness here is bigger than just whiteness. Um, you need to have the systematic exclusion of blackness. And more than that, you need to have um, blackness as it is now, um, as it is conditioned as a, as a state of social death, drawing on Orlando Patterson's famous uh, conceptualization of slavery. And so what we have then is not only do we have the idea of uh, a lack of relationality, a lack of being in a sense that defines blackness because of this, this genealogy of, of slavery. And in a very significant sense, this kind of dimension of slavery, a lack of relationality. Remember, for example, that slaves lose their name, they lose their family structures, so on and so forth. Yeah, that they are considered to be, um, they are property, they can be destroyed. They can be subjected to violence at any time. 
their objects of enjoyment, which is Sadia Hartman's um, uh, uh, discussion of this, and that they are uh, continually in a state of sort of perpetual dishonor. Those qualities that are developed from Orlando Patterson's understanding of slavery as condition are, are considered by many Afro-pessimists to be ongoing, right? So what, what it immediately strikes one is a kind of um, odd sense, like how can you say slavery is ongoing? And this is the sense in which you can say slavery is ongoing. Um, so those are part of what makes anti-Blackness a very separate condition. And I think I think it's going to take a long time for many um, uh, colleagues who do work in racism and the social psychology of racism to 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 really get to grips with the scale of the radical nature of the critique and analysis that Afro-pessimism is, is, is offering. And, and indeed, for people in psychoanalysis, I think it's it's going to take some time because it's, it's a very um, arresting and dramatic and, and forceful critique and analysis, which is only kind of just beginning. So that that's my first kind of just qualified um, attempt to respond to your, your question. The second then is how do we think about misogyny? And maybe... Maybe I could be permitted just a sort of personal response here. Um, when I was talking about university and, and reading and uh, Freud and thinking about you know psychoanalytic notions of sexual difference, for me, in the context I've described of apartheid South Africa, I was always relating these ideas of sexual difference back to my lived experience of racial difference. And David Marriott has got an a, a incredible book called Black on Noir, yeah. And he does this really amazing thing where, as Lacanians, we're all familiar with the little diagram. Of course, now I'm going to forget which essay in, in the Acre it is. Um, what is it? The, the urinary segregation diagram where, oh. you know, the one, there's little kids, a boy and a girl, they're opposite sides of a train carriage. They arrive and the one and they stop near a bathroom and the little boy goes, oh, I, I'm messing up the example. Oh, we're a gentleman. And, and the little girls, oh, no, we're ladies or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Marriott reproduces that diagram, but he reproduces it as saying uh, whites and non-whites or whites and, and blacks or something. That was really impactful for me because that was really the primary access of major how, how difference was, seemed to be structured and constantly reiterated uh, and verified and substantialized in, in my life in, in, in South Africa. And I mean, just on that point, and maybe this will take us to misogyny, or maybe it won't. But one of the things that's when I reflected many years later is about that South African experience, and, and not only Jim Crow racism, is is it's almost like the whole social sphere is like a involved in a dramaturgy of race. Like you have to keep on re-signifying the absolute imperative to create racial difference, whether it's like there's different places to eat, different places to go to the toilet, different places to sit. It's it's kind of like desperately being re-signified at all times as to alert the big other, don't forget racial difference exists. <laughs> so in a funny sort of way, the, the sheer number of instantiations reeks of a certain sort of desperation to keep on re-entrenching, reiterating, least we should forget. Anyways, so... What that means is when it's certainly in my engagement with psychoanalysis, sexual difference was always kind of secondary to 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 racial difference in a way. But now back to your question about misogyny. I, I don't know if I'm able to say anything that other people haven't already said, but I mean, one way that we deal with this kind of issue, certainly in undergrad classes for me, is is just to 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 sing that song. 
you make me feel like a natural woman. Sorry, it's a good idea. I didn't do it properly. But basically, again, and I'm picking up the theme of embodiment. Um, I'll ask students, like, what is it, you know, could we talk about something like a differential regime of embodiment? And then they look at me and say, just talk normally, please. What are you, stupid? And I'm like, well, what does it mean to, to, to be conscious of a body as me? And what does it mean to, to have a sense of consciousness and awareness of your body if you're a young man, a young woman, a young woman of color walking around this university campus? And, and then, you know, it gets interesting because we start to realize that there's p- places that people gravitate to and other places, um, particularly if you're a trans body, that you tend not to go to on campus. And, and then that, that gets us thinking. And at the risk of a big generalization and, and something that, that is not going to be particularly striking, what does it mean to, to occupy whose bodies are physically embodied in a more visceral way as opposed to whose are less so? And again, this is something I've seen um, Sheldon George and, and George Yancey talk about, but something about how, and again, I can't speak for women, but how it, it's to be a white male, maybe put it in these terms, it seems that my, and again, it's also mediated by obsessionality, interestingly enough, that my bodily relation doesn't really feel to me like the thing that is most defining of me. It feels like in, a lot of the time in, in some kind of completely ridiculous way, but somehow psychically believed that I'm not contingent on my body. Um, and I think this is what some people say about whiteness more generally, but I think we could be more accurate and say maybe white, able-bodied, heterosexual masculinity is is a kind of subject formation for whom I have a body. I don't feel that I'm, I feel I'm a bit self-conscious about it, um, but I don't feel that I'm, that's not the, that's not really an anchoring parameter of my subjectivity in a way that it might be for some someone else. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's also linked into the whole sort of Lacanian imaginary sphere of how I'm seen and how I take a relationship onto my own, to my own physicalization, so to speak, by virtue of how I'm seen by others. Um, so that's, that's, that's one answer. I haven't spoken much about violence and misogyny, but I suppose that's, that's the way that we, we discuss it um, in class, certainly with undergrad students. What, what is your view on that, though? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't prepare to give my own uh, answer to it, but I was certainly reacting to that quotation because it seems, I d- it just really seems to me that many of the arguments that are made in something like this Afro-pessimist text, you can make about the experience of women of any color. And so when when that gets sidelined, like I certainly want psychoanalysis to think about many questions it didn't think about before, such as the problem of the of the history of of racism and what we are living in right now as uh, as a result. But I I do want to keep from psychoanalysis things like this sensibility for sex as a a fundamental thing that can't be. That's material in a certain sense. Like we're we're here because two people came together and there was a womb involved, and we can't get around that up to mm-hmm. now. Like maybe we'll make we'll create some artificial womb someday, but but all the way to now, since the beginning of humanity, we have been inhabiting these 
uteruses in order to exist. And that and that just brings in some this is something Freud was really aware of. He's like, oh, yeah, like in the history in in, evol, in human evolution, you didn't really need women's consent for that to happen. <laughs> There's a line somewhere. I can't remember right now where he thinks about this. And it's like one of these brutal lines. But it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> so we're, we're populating this planet in for there are many cultural things that make it possible for that to happen but there is just a, this bottom line that you can't get around and that puts women in i think there's an ontological dimension to the question of <laughs> of women's being or something like this i think i think that's yeah i think that's that's great i think that's that's very good i um one of the reasons i'm being a little bit cautious about jumping in is that for Afro-pessimism, they're constantly concerned with making these kind of equivalences and parallels too quickly. Um, which So just to say that, but of course, that's not to say, and, and maybe let's, you know, we could put Afro-pessimism to one side now, we could think about it in terms of Lacanian social theory. You could say that within conditions of misogyny and patriarchy, that to be a woman means that you are structurally, whatever if we mean by that, more liable to be on a receiving end of male violence than, or, or more, yeah, more vulnerable to violence, which is one of the things that we were concerned about in Afro-pessimism, you know, the brutality of violence. Interestingly, also, this, this is a topic which I think is, is very, well, provocative and interesting, is that one is also often subject to the whims of male phallic jouissance and the the jouissance rage, which comes woman's way when um, the phallic properties of masculinity seem to have been uh, uh, stolen. You know, so this, this you know femicide, the you know these kind of statistics about how how the how frequently it is that murdered women are, are killed by intimate partners. Yeah. It tells you something, and I think it tells you something about phallic jouissance and its its proprietal sense of my enjoyment is and you are my enjoyment properties. So if you've done something, or I suspect that you've done something which is unfaithful, then there's this kind of righteous, you know, violent, ag aggressive action. So those are those are two similar things, and then there's also something about the factor of embodiment, which I which I tried to allude to a little bit earlier. But I suppose what I'm getting from your comments is to say it's really crucial not to forget those things. And yes, Afro pessimism doesn't want to make you know some uh, equations too rapidly, but we can we can learn something from Afro pessimism. Set Afro pessimism aside and say, well, in terms of its analysis of anti blackness. We're attuned to the jouissance of whiteness, how there have been moments of the white slaveholder enjoying its possession of blackness and, and its proprietal rights of enjoyment over it, and say, well, without drawing silly parallels, but asking a question, what kind of way does that thing work also in domains of, of, of sexuality and, and and masculinity and femininity and, and in the sexual domain. And I think that's what you're suggesting. Um, and, and I think that if we do that, we'll start to find that there are some very striking analytical things we can say about how jouissance works in, in patriarchy's possessiveness in relationship to femininity. How, um, I, and I didn't finish the point about you make me feel like a natural woman, but how, 
how femininity is located, whatever femininity is supposed to be, more within the register of the physicality of, of the natural order or something um, than how, how masculinity is stereotypically located. So yeah, I think I, I think I get those points. I'm maybe not quite as good as you are as, at being able to articulate them. Yeah, I think there's, there's there's important there's important factors. One thing that you do also mention though, which which um, I think is important, is uh, one of the moments in Lacan that I kind of fell in love with, which I think many of us do when you're trying to do all the Lacanian thing, is is the graphs of sexuation. Yeah. So we go to twenty and we're trying to think about like what what do we mean here? How do we understand you know? Um, the not all uh, that is apparently definitive of femininity as opposed to you know the the state of exception or whatever that, that locates masculinity and how to make sense of these things yeah. and uh, we could have another whole wonderful discussion about particularly joan kopchek's essay on that uh, oh, yeah. of, of reason is it what it's called yeah. I mean, it's brilliant you know it's really fantastic and how it entails kantian categories and all that and, i mean that stuff is incredible it's really it's really an amazing theoretical accomplishment both on her part and, and on Lacan's part yeah. um, but one question that sometimes comes back to me after that is do those notions of sexuation in Lacan start to flow a bit free of actual physicality of embodiment um, and the corporeality which we spent a lot of time today presumably because it's part of my research agenda and my weird fantasy structure um, do those bits get somehow elided in, in those later theorizations of, of sexuation. And then we have a sort of interesting point, because on the one hand, what is so incredible about those theorizations, sexuation, um, so-called feminine jouissance, all of that stuff, is, is that we it does take us beyond mere anatomy physicality. Absolutely. Right? But on the other hand, I do sometimes wonder, what about fleshiness? What about the corporeality of some of those things that you've been speaking about, of historically located notions of femininity and masculinity and how that corporeality, corporeal existence as a woman, is still something that's irreducible to the political domain of one's existence. Yeah, yeah, I really like that you're pointing that out. I would, I agree with that, absolutely. But yes, it would take us to a whole new episode <laughs> that, we, <laughs> that we may do one day. <laughs> So the the second part, I had said I had two parts to that question regarding Wilderson's uh, thought on the specificity of anti-Blackness. And thus, you've kind of touched on it, but I was trying to think about what happens outside of the specific histories and cultures, which are many and were profoundly affected by racism, which is, and by anti, like the, the specific histories and cultures that where anti-Blackness emerges. So if we get out of that, if we start looking at a context like um, Japan, and we're trying to understand violence there, and we're trying to understand um, the jouissance that fuels group organization, you've sort of pointed to it by turning to a more Lacanian framework to to think about this. But but yeah, so it it, it came to me as... Okay, so if this is specific to those cultures and histories, is there a way, because it's a political ontology, in which we could learn from this to transpose it or to bring it to other contexts as well? Or is it only talking about something that's bound or by that history? 
Yeah. Okay. So I'm a kind of Lacanian, I suppose. I'm a Lacanian and I'm a sort of um, social, uh, psychosocial studies person, critical theory person. And I'm someone who's interested in, in, in Afro-pessimism. So um, I think many people within Afro-pessimism would say we're, we're, we, there is no existing language that adequately articulates the Black suffering in these historical coordinates. And so that's that's fine. That's what's that's an Afro-pessimism still in a way a beginning project. Okay, mm-hmm. um, I don't with having noted the danger of creating quick parallels and easy equations that Afro-pessimists don't like. I think that some of those questions are useful also asking elsewhere. And I think one of the contributions of Afro-pessimism, for example, is to help us ask different questions of science. So. Part of your question, okay, historical reality of whatever, contemporary gender relations in, in Japan, how does jouissance help us? Um, one of my own sort of kind of critical projects is to say, well, how do we use the notion of jouissance in a slightly lazy way in Lacanian social theory, where it starts to, to you know, well, you want to explain uh, prejudice? Well, it's the theft of enjoyment. You want to understand race? It's theft of enjoyment. It, it's someone perceiving that their enjoyment is being taken by someone else who's got a toxic enjoyment. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you've got this one-size-fits-all model, which I think is very problematic. So what we need to do then is while we can learn some very interesting analytical insights from Afro-pessimism in respect of how we use jouissance, I think we could still ask some of those questions in different social spheres, and we could use it to be a little bit more conceptually refined about how we use this notion of jouissance. So, for example, I mean, and you've read the thing that I've I've written, I was amazed how Sadia Hartman is using the category of enjoyment, not explicitly psychoanalytically, but also in a very psychoanalytically or Lacanianly suggestive way to talk about relationships between the enslaved and and white um, slave owners, holders, and to do it in a way that goes slightly beyond the implications of how we sometimes think jouissance in a Lacanian paradigm. So, for example, she talks about the hereditament of the, the slave owner. In other words, almost implying that maybe you could have an inherited mode of jouissance. Now, this leads to a head-scratching moment. How can I have, how can you have inherited jouissance? I mean, jouissance is this kind of morbid excitation of the body, this 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 surplus, this uh, voluptuous, um, excessive uh, arousal of the body. So how do you get, you can't inherit that. But what you can inherit is a whole series of entitlements, a whole series of um, insignias of whiteness and identifications of whiteness, um, which entail often a sense of prerogative relative to, and if we go to to more uh, gendered terrain, you could say that masculinity often inherits precisely those senses of entitlement and prerogative, which is also a kind of inherited right to enjoy. So although you can't necessarily inherit someone's substance of their experiential jouissance, you can certainly inherit enough of those things to inherit the kind of symbolic location of a prerogative to enjoy in the same way that my father, my brothers, my whatever have enjoyed. So that's just one example of how we can start to think about how we might utilize the concept of jouissance differently and revitalize Lacanian theory such that when we want to think about the concept, whether it is in in contemporary Japan, we don't just say, oh, here's jouissance and here's the theft of enjoyment. We say, well, what is the particular structure of fantasy that's at work? And moreover, and Fanon is really helpful here, 
he says that there is a mode of, well, he didn't use the term, obviously, but there is a kind of jouissance, excitation, this uh, sort of masochistic excessiveness in white racism. And he points to the masochistic dimension of that, which is a, is a brilliant insight. But what's important is it's not just the identification of the jouissance, but what modality of jouissance is it? Is it phallic? Is it is a kind of narcissistic, self-congratulatory jouissance of superiority? Or is there something else going on? How do we link it to fantasy? How do we link it to a whole series of prerogatives, entitlements? How do we think about it in terms of uh, what is created as the kind of standard scenario nightmare for what would threaten whiteness or whatever? And there's there's a whole series of further analytical steps, which I, which I won't go through now. But for me, then, what we could say is that a theory like or series of critical imperatives that we see in Afro-pessimism can help us ask critical questions back about Lacanian notions like that of jouissance, maybe like that of fantasy, such that we could sharpen them and think about a different analytical framework, a kind of libidinal economy of jouissance as it occurs in other historically located places and is also predicated on the formation of fantasies. Fantasies um, that are sometimes somewhat apparent, but sometimes less so. That's great. Yeah, thank you. That's a very satisfying answer. And I think we're going to stop here. <laughs> so, okay. all right. Well, thank you so much, Derek. Thanks, Fernanda. I, I really enjoyed it. And it was a nice opportunity to try and articulate this stuff. So, uh, well.